Ouch. Growing pains hurt. And when you're a marketer trying to generate leads for your startup, you know the pain all too well. Thankfully, there's HubSpot for startups. It's a special program that gives startups discounts on HubSpot and so much more. But first, let's talk about the platform. The platform unites your entire front office from marketing to sales to support. The platform that streamlines your support tickets, generates more leads, and increases sales. The platform that scales right along with you. HubSpot for startups has it all. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com startups. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Another Bite. We have a very, very special set of guests with us today. We have some people who were just recently on Shark Tank. You know, we spend our days on this podcast just giving commentary about what a great and or awful job the entrepreneurs on Shark Tank do. And today we get to have two of those entrepreneurs join us to talk about their business and about the experience of being on Shark Tank. The company that Tim and Scott are running and growing right now is called Paddle Smash. So Tim, Scott, tell us, what's Paddle Smash? Thanks for having us, guys. Yeah, so Paddle Smash is like a love child of pickleball and spike ball, two very popular you know, outdoor games. And so Paddle Smash basically combines the best elements of both of those games. It's played two versus two. Each partner is holding a pickleball paddle and you're playing with pickleball on a hexagonal plastic surface with a net going up around it. And you're trying to bump, set and smash with your partner to get it into the court and over the net for the other team to, you know, do the same. So that's the gist of the game. Yeah, you demoed it on Shark Tank and it looked really fun. Yes. So I think I've made over 250 products in my career so far. And I'm not exaggerating to say this is my very favorite. Oh, it's the one okay. I get the most joy out of playing. It's the one that when I'm done playing, I'm always like, I actually made something really good here. That's awesome. That's awesome. So would you say that you have to be like very sports heavy or fit to play paddle smash because i must say i'm not very fit but would paddle smash be for me jory are you asking for a friend yeah but the friend is <laughs> me see. you're asking for you it's me that can't play sports <laughs> that's one of the things we're really proud of is we do say that it's good for anybody to play that's ages 12 to 13 years old plus whereas generally speaking you know spike ball we consider more of like a male heavy sport younger typically someone in their 20s college kids very intense looking yeah. that one i would say is fairly difficult if i was to base it on the skill level of difficulty or not whereas pickleball probably a little easier to play than our game, just to get started at least. Certainly if you're familiar with using a paddle or racket, you're gonna pick it up a lot quicker, but we do feel like it's a pretty wide, broad range of ages and genders that can play our game. Does almost everybody who plays Paddle Smash, are they also pickleball players who are transitioning into it so they can do it in their backyard? Or is it a whole new net new group of players in the world? I mean, I think our open question starting the business was, which market out of the two would be best for us? The two being pickleball versus spike ball. We say paddle smash is this love child of the two because I don't think there's a lot of overlap between the two worlds, honestly. No. You know, spike ball tends to be college age kids. Sure. Pickleball, certainly over the last decade, this has shifted a bit, but it's been older adult focused and now it's getting younger and younger. Mm. But we didn't know coming in, we had some guesses. Our price point's high and mm. we're looking at people with discretionary income that doesn't usually tend to be college age kids. 
But we wanted to test and learn. So, you know, we've done a lot of exploration in both worlds. I've gone to tournaments for spike ball and set the game up and had people come over and play. They play it well. They genuinely enjoy it. And I think most of their reaction is, I'm already into spike ball. I've already invested a bunch of money in this sport. Like, this is my thing. Then we've gone to pickleball world and we've played it with them. And they go, yes, another thing that like helps me get better or another thing that gives me a little bit of pickleball experience in my backyard. I can't afford a court in my backyard. So now I can put this in my backyard and play it with family. I can take this to the beach. And I think through testing and learning, we've really landed on that being our primary audience. Okay. That pickleball fan looking for a way to bring kind of pickleball to go, pickleball anywhere, pickleball in their backyard. Yeah. That's amazing. Could you just tell us like, how do you two know each other? How'd you meet? Yeah, how'd you meet? What's the story? I'm from Chicago originally, lived there my whole life. Uh, Scott was living there at the time. He had opened a series of retail shops called Marbles the Brain Store that carried toys oh. and games related to like brain health. And I was in software at the time, was a software entrepreneur building a sales software where I'm like, as a nights and weekends kind of passion project, I decided to create a tabletop board game akin to like a Cards Against Humanity. It was adult focused called Utter Nonsense. I've got Utter Nonsense. Get out. I bought it at Marvel's The Brain Store in Chicago. (laughs) That's awesome. I cannot believe that. I'm blown away right now. Early adopter. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so that's how we met. And through the years, we just kind of continued to stay in touch, really liked working with each other. I went off and sold my board game company to a private equity-backed toy and game company called Play Monster. Mm-hmm. Scott went and sold Marbles the Brain Store to Spin Master, a publicly traded toy and game company uh, based out of Canada. So that's how we got to know each other. And this is kind of our big first project we're working on. That's amazing. So I just have to say, Scott, I love Marbles the Brain Store. Marbles was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we grew it fast, had 40 stores across the U.S., and an amazing experience. Good for you. So you two are like, you're serial entrepreneurs. The interesting thing I think about Paddle Smash, if I'm right, this is a licensed game. You're not the original inventors of the game. Is that true? Somebody else invented and you licensed it. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. With my role with Marbles, inventors were always coming to me with their ideas. And, you know, when people hear what I do for a living, everyone always knows someone that's invented a game. And I happened to chat with a guy I played pickleball with and he's like, oh, my brother-in-law's invented a game. And I'm like, I'm always willing. Most of the time, the ideas are awful, but I'm always willing because you just don't know <laughs> where you're going to find kind of that diamond in the rough. And I got introduced to a guy named Joe Bingham. And, you know, Tim and I had been looking for an idea in the pickleball space. And I met Joe and Joe's like, I made this game that's pickleball meets spike ball. And I'm like, Joe, there's something in the ether. We've been trying to come up with something like this. I played it. I was like, this is great. And mm-hmm. Tim flew out to my house in Utah. We played it together. We took it to the local pickleball courts and watched people react to it and played it with them and just got such good feedback from that experience that like, oh, there's something real here. But yeah, Joe's the original inventor. He's a structural engineer and playing it with friends and family for a couple of years. Liked it, but didn't know what to do. He had never had that experience. So it's just like fortuitous meeting. This is what I've done for a living. And it's become a great partnership where Joe has licensed the idea to us. He's not involved in the day-to-day operations of the business, but Joe gets a nice little royalty check once a quarter. It's amazing for him, amazing for you. Amazing for all of us, yeah. So there's the licensing path and there's the inventing something new path. What are your pros and cons of each path? And do you have any advice for someone who may want to take that more licensing route with a product? It's a big decision. And the simplest way to probably decide is a experience in the space. You've got a better chance of succeeding by taking this to market yourself. Mm -hmm. And I'd say the second biggest factor is cost to get it to market. 
An example would be Tim's card game. Very low cost to get it to market. Tim can print domestically. He can have a production run of 500 games and he can get in front of customers. I don't know. What was the cash outlay for that, Tim? Five grand? Mm -hmm. I mean, not nothing, but it's not a big cost to kind of test and learn. It's not a huge capital hurdle. Find out if there's any market out there at all. Yeah, but you've got some inventors that come with ideas where it's a tooled piece that's going to cost fifty dollars to $100,000 to even get this thing made to get it in front of a customer. And unless they're a seasoned veteran with a lot of money to spare, I would generally recommend you license those ideas off and let somebody else bear the risk of getting that to market and testing. But if it's an idea that you can test cheaply, generally, I would recommend that you try that yourself mm-hmm. and get some market validation. That's not to say you won't ultimately license that off. That's totally a possibility. But companies love ideas that have already been tested. So generally, if you can show some traction yourself, it helps you jump the line a bit. That's a great point. And an example of that would be a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Kickstarter, a lot of times you're able to go on there without actually having the physical product, but you have prototypes or whatever it may be. And if you're able to do well on Kickstarter, that is a form of market validation that you could then take to a buyer or a company that would be interested in potentially licensing your game. Scott and I both have our own licenses of games that we've created. Mm -hmm. And there are people out there that are very well suited for the types of games that those are. And so I'm better off licensing them. I'm just getting checks quarterly Mm -hmm. and it's great. So you made the call, you're in Utah, you brought it to the pickleball court. People loved it. And you were like, we're doing this, we're licensing it. What were some of your initial hypotheses about customer acquisition and what did you get right and what did you get wrong? So the traditional way that you would do this is that you would come up with an idea And if you were bringing it to market, what you would first do is go to a retailer and try and pitch it into a buyer. It's how it's always worked in the toy industry is you are at the mercy of the buyers. There are two buyers that matter in this space, the target buyer and the Walmart buyer. You might catch them on a bad day. (laughs) I've got stories from my past where we will have worked on an idea for a year. We would have spent $100,000 on even getting this to where we have it ready to show to the buyer. The buyer shows up. She's in a bad mood. She's like, show me what you've worked on. We show it to her. She's like, "Ah, it's fine. I don't know, guys. Show me another time. And we killed it because of that. And that depressed me and it upset me. And I kind of vowed to see if we could do it a different way and the way we want to try and do it. And it's more possible than ever to do it this way because of the direct access to consumers through Shopify, through Amazon, Mm -hmm. to try and build a business before even taking it to a buyer, before even touching a telephone or an email. That was our hypothesis was, can we build a business that then gets a buyer to come to us and shifts the leverage? Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to a buyer and you're begging, the leverage is all in their hands. But if you can shift that leverage a little bit where you've got enough traction to be able to say, listen, like we're doing fine on our own. We don't have to be in your stores. We'd like to be in your stores. Let's talk about what that looks like. That's what we were trying to shift. Yeah. So that was our hypothesis. Here's how it actually went. (laughs) You know, we launched on Shopify, launched on Amazon, and decided just because of the length of the buying cycle, you know, it's like you're typically at least a year out. We're like, let's at least get it in front of a couple buyers just so they've got it in their heads. And we sent cold emails. We're not in the sporting goods industry. I've been in the toy and game industry, which is different from sporting goods. So we sent cold emails to Dick's Sporting Goods, to Shields, to Academy Sports, just kind of like on a whim and a prayer. Let's see if like anybody responds. And they did. 
Wow. All three of them responded, and all three of them agreed to carry the game. Oh, amazing. It is so atypical. I can't tell you how atypical it is. And I think that the biggest reason for this is because of the pickleball trend. Yeah. And so, you know, for all you listeners out there mm-hmm. wondering why that worked, well, we picked a trend that's hot. Yeah. So despite the shift in our strategies and getting into brick and mortar retail way earlier than we anticipated, mm-hmm. I actually think it's worked well for us because it's been a test and learn experience with all of these retailers. None of them have gone full chain. We don't want them to. We just had a call with the third biggest sporting goods chain in the U.S. last week and basically said, don't launch yet. Do not carry our game yet, at least full chain, please, because we want to build a base of awareness for Mm. our game. You've got a one and done chance with some of these retailers and you go in there and you fail and you fail for a couple months and you will never get back. Yeah, they'll just pull you and you're done. And we're just not desperate to be everywhere yet. We would rather build a foundation of kind of healthy awareness before going out to all these brick and mortar stores. Mm-hmm. In marketing a lot, we talk about how to position a product and a lot of people try and do what's called like better positioning, right? Like, oh, it's better than this. I think the cool thing about what you two have done in positioning this thing is you've positioned it as different. Instead of saying like, oh, we have a better pickleball paddle or a better pickleball, you went into this category that's massive and growing tremendously fast and you said, we have something that's different. And I think that's always just a good takeaway for people to think about how to position a product in a growing category. So kudos to you for that. That's incredible. Thanks. Could you give us a teeny bit of advice for listeners who get a shot at presenting to a buyer about how to make that a really successful presentation? Yeah, what's that strategy look like? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been on the receiving end of this many times. And I think the ones that do best, I think, have a quiet confidence, but not a desperation. You know, I think if I were to kind of go back to this pitch we just had this last week, we kind of made him feel like maybe that we weren't desperate to be in his stores. And it made him want us more. Mm. So don't be too eager. Actually, Tim, maybe share your experience with Utter Nonsense and Target. Yeah. So after Scott had taken the game into his stores, it got on the radar of the target buyer. And this was only like two months after we had launched. And so we were a little nervous about really working with any retailers, particularly one as big as Target. And so we just told them no, which I quickly found out no one has ever told the target buyer no. Because at the time, I should add, you know, we were trying to follow the Cards Against Humanity model and they had shunned retail. I mean, I know we're working with Scott, but that was like local, small, I don't know, just like felt more comfortable versus you hear kind of these horror stories of working with mass retail. And so kept saying no, and they just kept making the offer better. Started throwing out terms I'd never heard of. I mean, I recall being on, on a call with the buyer and he'd be like, we'll give you end cap space. And I was like Googling, what's an end cap? You know, <laughs> I just didn't cap? know any retail terms. And yeah. so anyway, it was like, I think I counted, it was like nine times we told him no. Wow. And finally we said yes. And it worked out great. The game was incredibly successful at Target and it was a great partnership. People want what they can't have. Yeah, that's right. There's the psychological. Totally. People want what they can't have. Yeah. Play hard to get. As we prepared for Shark Tank, we learned some good lessons. They had us film initially a video kind of telling about ourselves and telling about our product. And they're like, it needs to be 10 minutes. And our first stab at it, I think, was over 20 minutes. (laughs) So then we like did it again. We trimmed it all and then filmed it again. It was like 15 minutes and then it was 10 minutes. And then we like finally nailed it at 10 minutes. And then they like came back and they're like, okay, guys, now boil it down to one minute. So it's like this thing that we worked so hard to get down to 10 (laughs) minutes. And it's like, what's the one minute version of your story? 
And I think that's a really healthy exercise for you to go through before you go in front of a buyer because you don't know how long you're going to get. Yeah. Practice boiling it down to like the most essential elements. Yeah. So I have to ask, at what point did Shark Tank start to enter your mind? So I need to disclose that I'd actually been on it one time before Oh, for a different product that I did with my 10-year-old niece that was like a spin on um, fidget spinners. And we went on Shark Tank, ended up getting a deal, ended up that didn't air. Mm. And we'd gotten a deal too, which deal fell through afterwards. So... I'll just say I kind of have like a little bit of a salty taste in my mouth from the whole experience. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. And so obviously we knew about it and people would mention it. Like, I'm going to get him this time. But I was kind of like, we don't need Shark Tank. (laughs) And Scott and I, it was March of this year and we were out in New Jersey for a trade show. And it was like every other person was like, you guys are great. You guys got to go on Shark Tank. This would be perfect for Shark Tank. So (laughs) we heard it so much. And Mm -hmm. we were coming home from that and we got an email from one of the producers asking us to apply. They approached you. They did. It's like serendipity. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And the product was on the Today Show that morning. And so we think maybe, you know, the producer had seen that and looked into it. And it was one of those just kind of like, okay, Tim, swallow your pride. Like, this is an incredible opportunity. This could be game changing for our business. Let's pursue this. So how much would you say your pitch was your own versus like the creative oversight of the producers? Yeah, we talk about this all the time. It seems like not only do the pitches that make the best television do the best, but also it seems like the producers, if you don't make good television, will make good television out of you. Right. A little bit. They'll kind of slice and dice you and put together their own version. So you might as well own your own narrative there. Yes, exactly. And so I think that at the end of the day, it's like they get paid for good ratings and you need to be entertaining to get the people's eyeballs and whatnot. And so television. Mm-hmm. be animated, be funny, I, whatever it is, just like get their attention. They definitely have a template. Mm-hmm. They've learned the things that work well, but there are definitely parts that were us. You know, it's like the dancing. That was <laughs> us. You know, it's a combo of pickleball and spike ball. But we started saying that it was a love child of pickleball and spike ball. And it always made people laugh. They're like, all right, like that love child is something right. different. That's like more memorable and TV worthy. And we're like, all right, well, how do we tell the story of this love child coming to be? And then like Tim and I started to groove a little bit. Doing your dance. I remember the grooving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that dance has become a little bit of like the meme almost for our episode is like us grooving together back to back and like then that smash together. So those producers were great. Can I ask you, my impression when you get a deal on Shark Tank is that one of the real benefits is you enter a community of other people who've gotten funded on Shark Tank and that those communities are pretty helpful and connected. Can you just tell us, like, what has your experience been following the show? You know, what does the support look like? How does it work when you're working with two different sharks? Yeah, I'd say our episode aired about two months ago. So we're still pretty fresh off of the episode airing. Yeah. Beforehand is where we saw a lot of the value. So before our episode aired, we reached out to a bunch of companies that had been on and we had some good calls just to pick people's brains to kind of hear about the experience a bit more, like what the deal experience went like on air and after. So that's been really valuable to just kind of be tapped into the community there. So once we knew we were going to air... We started kind of mad scramble calling people and got some checklists of like things you make sure you do the night of your episode airing and and the days Mm -hmm. following. That really helped us to set ourselves up for success. There's just so much stuff you don't think about that all of these companies have been through and they know call Shopify. And even though Shopify is this massive 
organization, like just make sure that they know sure. so that they don't like shut your site down thinking that you're getting hit with a bunch of bots. Your site doesn't go down. Yeah. A spike in traffic. Oh, I never would have thought of that. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. So it's just these things that people help you to think about. It has been such a mad scramble since then that Tim and I have not like had the mm. bandwidth to tap in a deep way into that community. Yeah. That was in March that we got asked to be on Shark Tank. That feels like five years ago to me. <laughs> it's been an awesome year, but it's been a long year. Sure. Busy. Yeah. Okay. So going into the day, paint a picture. How are you feeling? What happened day of pitch? So Scott and I, since we live separately, we had never practiced ourselves together. And so that was like one thing that was like making us a little nervous. So we were able to do that the night before, did not sleep very well. You're just full of Mm -hmm. nerves and nervous energy. So then you go over to Culver City to the Sony lot and we found out we were going to be second. And so thankful that we didn't have to like sit around and just (laughs) sweat this, you know, and be nervous all day. So you had the sweatbands. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So we got over there. They kind of take you through backstage. You get to see the set, just get yourself comfortable with what it's going to all look like. And then it was like straight into hair and makeup and then get ready to shoot. So it was really like, go, go, go from the second we got up that morning. I don't know if you guys know this, but after the show... They have you talk to a therapist. Really? Um, like they actually have a therapist sit down with you. Did you guys know this? No. No. Tell us more. That's a lot to unpack. <laughs> okay. So let's unpack a little bit because uh, yeah. <laughs> the experience of like being in front of these cameras, I mean, it's already a little intense. Yeah. You know, like you've got one take for that one minute pitch. They're not yeah. allowing you to try a bunch of times. It's one take. Wow. So that part actually had us the least nervous. We had rehearsed that a million times. We were good there. What makes you nervous is the question and answer section after, because you just don't know what they're going to fire your way. So the question and answer section, they're just like throwing these questions your way. They're interrupting one another, interrupting you. You're like wanting to get these things out about your business that you just don't get out. And you're just like, it feels like such a whirlwind and it's intense. And then all of a sudden they're throwing out offers for your business. And we had a plan beforehand. We're like, all right, what's our line in the sand? And it's like the Mike Tyson line, like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Like we had a plan and then we start getting punched in the mouth out there. And it's yeah. like immediately we're crossing that line we had put in the sand and what we're You're willing like, to accept. I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> I think like Tim and I were a little shell shocked. Yeah. And in front of the cameras when they're doing the exit interviews, they had to keep telling us, they're like, are you guys okay? Yeah. And like, look happy, guys. And we were happy, but we were like, what just happened? Like <laughs> emotions. You know, like a lot of emotions. <laughs> yeah. Like uh And so then they have you go and talk to a therapist. Mm -hmm. It's required that every company, in our case, like we had a very good experience and they on the whole loved our business. They did not rip on our business. But a lot of those companies go out there and they just get hammered. Just get hammered. And it's their baby. Yeah. And the sharks are calling their baby ugly. Mm -hmm. And so they have these therapists that kind of talk you down (laughs) and uh, help you work through that. Any parting advice to would be shark tankers out there, people who might consider trying to get their product on Shark Tank before we wrap up today? It was an outstanding opportunity and experience. We genuinely enjoyed working with the entire staff, the production teams, the Sharks. So it was just like overall a really positive experience. The other thing is too that kind of felt as we're going through it is that it feels like a little bit of a war of attrition. Like some of these requests that they come to you with are pretty elaborate and take a lot of time and- Trying to weed you out. Redo our pitch and Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It just was like, gosh- is this worth it? Right. And Mm -hmm. I would say like, 
maybe that's part of their process too, is just to see who it's going to like stick with it yeah. and keep up staying motivated and staying positive and doing all of the asks and all the homework and whatnot that they ask of you. So that's another thing I would just recommend is just stay with it. That's great. I just say that, I mean, the Shark Tank bump is real. At least mm-hmm. it was for us. That night of airing was 5X our best day ever. Wow. And then that just, like it persists. It just, the next day was our second best day ever. And the next day was our third best day ever by a long shot. And then it was just like, it stair-stepped our whole business. It's like the baseline is now a big step above what it was before. I think it just exposes you to such a broad amount of people. It opens a bunch of doors for you. You start getting inbound from a bunch of retailers interested in carrying your product, a lot of international interests. So for us, it's just been outstanding taking our business to that next stage. I have to ask, the night of airing, did you watch the episode together? Like, what was that airing episode? Because for you as entrepreneurs, it's a huge step. So like, how did you guys watch the episode? So we were not in the same location. We held a watch party here (laughs) at our house. I think Scott did one just kind of with his immediate family and in-laws in his hotel room in South Carolina. So we didn't watch it together. We'd done a lot of prep work up leading to watching the episode and making sure we were ready for the business side of it. But obviously, it's like a very emotional experience, too. And so right after the episode, we called each other and kind of gave the digital version of hugged it out. Lots of like, I love you, bro. You know, like, this was amazing. Like, great (laughs) job. This was amazing. Wouldn't want to do this (laughs) with anyone else. That kind of a thing. Well, we love you, bros, here on Another Bite. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It was really nice to meet you both. Congrats on all your success. Cheering for Paddle Smash. Thanks and have a good day. Pleasure chatting with you both. Appreciate that, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks, guys. Can't wait to see what comes next. (laughs) Bye-bye. Today's episode was brought to you by the magnanimous Matthew Brown. Editing comes from Robert Hartwig and support from Melanie Romero. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you subscribe to the greatest podcasts ever. That does it for me. See you in the tank next week for another bite.